can turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 41. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would have hearts that are soft and submissive to you today. We, we come because of the Lamb of God, your Son, Jesus Christ, who has taken away the sins of the world and who has taken away our sins. And so we come freely, we come humbly, and we come boldly into your presence. I pray that you continue the process of making us more and more like Jesus as we look at the example of his life. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Let's read in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Now Jesus' parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. But they supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Uh, This is a unique story. We don't have many insights into Jesus as a boy. But this little story is is a really wonderful window into uh, the pattern of Jesus' life. Because even as a child, he sets this pattern of being about his father's business. What is consuming for Jesus Christ is to do the will of the Father. To hear from the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. To hear him say, well done. This is the pattern of Christ's life, beginning as a child, all the way through his entire life. But the other thing that I really like about this story is that it shows Jesus in his humanity. He is working out his pursuit of the Father's will in the context of earthly relationships that are just like ours. Uh, Imagine if you were Jesus' parents. Imagine if it were your child, your 12-year-old child that was lost for three days. You had no idea where your child was for three days. Imagine the anxiety and the fear that his parents felt, Mary and Joseph, as they searched and they searched and they searched and they asked this relative and another relative, is Jesus with you? No, we haven't seen him. Is Jesus with you? And they return to the city. And for three days, they look and they can't find Jesus. And when they find Jesus, what does he say? What's the big deal? (laughs) I mean, it's such a great picture of his humanity, right? What a 12-year-old response. Mom, Dad, what are you worried about? Didn't you know I'd be right here? Asking questions, giving answers. See, Jesus was about the will of his father, but it was all done in completely human relationships, just like ours. And what we see throughout the New Testament is that just like Jesus, we're called to be about the father's business, to have our lives consumed with hearing him say to us, well done, with you I am well pleased. But we do that in the context of human relationships. And so, 
As you look in the New Testament, you see command after command toward one another, love one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, forgive one another, put up with one another. And one of the most difficult to fulfill, submit to one another. And what we see worked out is that our love for God is worked out in our love for one another and our submission to God is worked out in the context of our submission to one another. But submission is an incredibly difficult command to fulfill because it cuts right against the grain of our fallen humanity. An unwillingness to submit, I would argue, is really at the heart of our sin struggle. It's at, it's at the root of our flesh. If you go back into the garden, Adam and Eve's choice to take the apple and to eat of its fruit was a choice not to do the will of God, but to do their own will. If you think about it, there was nothing inherently wrong with the fruit, was there? Eve didn't take a bite and say, ooh, yuck, Adam, try this. It's terrible, did she? It wasn't ugly fruit. It wasn't nasty tasting fruit. It wasn't poison. She didn't eat it and go, ah, I'm poisoned. There was nothing inherently wrong with the fruit. The problem with the fruit was God said no. God said no. Don't eat of it. Despite how attractive it is and despite how sweet tasting it is, just because I said so. Parents, you ever felt that way? I mean, you know, you swear when you're a parent, I'll never never say that to my own kids because my parents said it to me, but then you find yourself saying it because it's the best answer. It's the right answer. Just, I don't have time to explain or you wouldn't understand my explanation. You, got, you just need to trust me just because I said so. But we are born into this world wanting our own way. And I think part of our greatest struggle with sin is we don't acknowledge how completely defective the flesh is. The flesh is constantly saying, no God, not your will, my will be done. And we inherited that from Adam and Eve. We're born into that. And so we will always wrestle with this. We will always struggle with this. It's really going to be at the root of our struggle with sin. Submission. What does it mean? Let's start with the definition. Submission comes from a Greek word that's a compound word. It begins with a prefix, hupo, which means under. It's attached to a verb, tasso, which means to arrange or to put in place. So hupo tasso means to place under. And in this context, it means to place your will under the will of another, to submit, whether that is submission to God or working out your submission to God in the context of human relationships, submission to others. And we find that we are born into this world being called to submit. I want you to look back with me again, Luke chapter 2, verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth, that is, with his parents, and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all of these things in her heart. We begin our life being called to submit to our parents. Jesus was called to submit to his parents, and what you see in Jesus' life is a pattern of submission throughout his entire life. He continued in subjection to them. As we began our series and our study of the life of Jesus, we started at this point. We said the pattern of the life of Jesus is absolute and complete dependence upon the Spirit and submission to the will of God. Let me remind you just of one illustration of this. John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is why I am here, to submit my will. And every single one of us is born into this world being called upon to submit our wills. 
First, to our parents. Where do we see that will beginning to emerge? I had a friend of mine ask me one time, he had just had his first child, and he said, you know, when does the will emerge? When do you begin to see it? And I said, well, you know what? A lot sooner than you think. Have you ever noticed when you're changing your baby's diapers that they arch their back and they squirm and they they begin to flail and they make terrible faces and terrible noises? What are they doing? They're saying, not your will but mine be done. No to the diaper. Okay, that's what they're saying. I will not submit. We're born that way. We're born that way. I want you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 1. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is actually the first commandment that has a promise attached to it, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Uh, Everywhere that the command to submit appears, God also tells us what the motivation is. Here he says, children, submit to your parents because that's where you find long life. It's not a guarantee, it's a, it's, a, it's a proverb, it's a maxim, it's a generally true statement. Generally speaking, your parents have more wisdom than you have, and as a child, if you listen to your wisdom, you're probably going to live longer. That's what he's talking about, physically live longer, because you won't make foolish decisions that get you killed. Okay? Don't play with knives. No, don't do that. No, don't touch that hot pan. You will live longer on the earth if you listen to their wisdom, so children... Obey your parents. There's always a motivation attached to submission. But as we get older and hopefully we grow in wisdom, that relationship changes, doesn't it? And so no longer are we called to submit or obey our parents, but we're still called upon to respect them and to show them honor. Whether parents are Christians or non-parents, we still honor them. We still respect their authority. College students, you are in an interesting transition period. Are you still called upon to obey your parents and submit to them? You're adults. You're out on your own. Sort of, right? The key element here, I think, in answering that question is money. Okay? How much are you out on your own? Maybe not at all. Maybe, maybe entirely. Maybe some of you are completely financially independent, in which case... I would say, you have left, and it is your responsibility to honor, but not necessarily to obey. If you're financially dependent on your parents, obey your parents, okay? Let me give you an illustration of this. Uh, I've seen this actually worked out many times in my own office, actually. I've seen this happen. Student comes to college, gets really excited about walking with the Lord, hears about a missions trip. Mom, dad... I'm going to Africa. Uh, Mom and dad have never been out of the country. You've never been out of the country. And now you're going to Africa. Come home. Yeah, I'm going to Africa because I need to tell people about Jesus. So, and by the way, I'm going to ask all of your friends for money to go on this trip. And mom and dad say, no, you're not. But I have to. This is the will of God for my life. What are you talking about will of God? Pick up the phone. Who do they call? Calls me. (laughs) Well, actually, he doesn't call me anymore. Calls Matt. So Matt has to field these phone calls. What are you doing, you know, trying to send my kid? Da, da, da. And not only that, my kid says they're going to ask my friends for money. No way, you know. And, and I've had parents call me up and say, I'll be in College Station in three hours. <laughs> Drive into town, 
grab their kids by the scruff of the neck, call them in, and they sit them down, and they say, they're not going on your missions trip. And I turn to the children, and I say, college children, and I say, are you financially dependent on your parents? Uh-huh. So you're not going on the trip. <laughs> parents, really? Yeah, really? You're paying the bills. They're not going. And then I turn to the students and say, but on the other hand, if you are prepared to make that financial break and to live entirely on your own, then we'll accept you on the trip. Never had anybody take me up on that. <laughs> I don't know why. But you could. But usually in the context of me supporting the parents' authority, we can talk through this whole process and what God is doing in the children's lives and how he's moving and transforming and why they want to go. And we can talk about safety issues and so forth. And I've seen most parents begin to yield and say, okay, I, I begin to understand now, particularly when they're, they're students, their young uh, students show them respect and honor and a willingness to joyfully submit to their will. Okay. Because the fact of the matter is, your, your parents aren't telling you, in a sense, no, you can't fulfill the will of God because you can't prove from the Bible God's will for my life is to go on this summer missions trip, right? You can say that the will of God for you is to share Christ, but you could stay in College Station, take summer school, or go home, and you could share Christ. Now, if your parents say to you, and I've seen this happen as well, Okay, I understand you went off to college and you found Jesus and all this religion and stuff. But I don't want you to get too serious about it. Remember, you are there for school. So it's fine if you want to play intramurals and go to your Christian clubs and attend church on Sunday. But don't let this thing get too out of control. You're there. Finish your college. Get a career. Provide for your family. Find a husband. Find a wife. That's why we sent you. And certainly when you come home, don't be talking about Jesus all the time to us and to your grandparents. We don't want to hear it. Don't talk about Jesus. Do you obey? No, you don't. Because you know, black and white, from the word of God, that you must talk about Jesus and be prepared to suffer the consequences if you do. So you're in an interesting transition period. When do you obey and submit? When do you have to choose to take the consequences, but you still honor and you show respect as you move through that process and that period? And I would say, for those of you even who have left financially, uh, maybe you've gone out and you've gotten married and now you're beginning to make your own way and you're working a job, you've made that break. You still show honor. You still show respect, even if the pathway that God has called you down is different from what your parents want, okay? Because that is attached to a promise, it will be well with you, and you will live, all, live long on the earth. Okay, this is the will of God, that we live in submission. It starts in the home. Okay, it starts first with parents, but it also extends to our spiritual family. We should turn back just one chapter in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Actually, let's start in verse 17. I put us in context here. Paul says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What's God's will for my life? Well, this is part of it. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, or that's reckless living. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be controlled by foreign substances, but be controlled by the power of the Spirit in your life. And it's manifested like this, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, 
always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Here's how we fulfill the will of God. Our submission to the Father is worked out in our submission to one another. This is the family of God. The church, the body of Christ is a family. And we submit, therefore, one to another. Okay? Regardless of, of age or role or status, we submit one to another. I grew up, uh, as you know, in upstate New York, and where I came from, we had a lot of one-lane bridges. Okay? One lane passes each way. I want you to use your power of observations here, observation for just a minute, and tell me uh, what is missing in this picture that you might have expected to see. Here, what's not in that picture that you might have expected to see? This is a one-lane bridge. You've got a walking path on the left. What's not there? Okay, there's no stop sign or yield sign, is there? If you go throughout upstate New York, uh, I I don't recall ever seeing a one-lane bridge that ever had a yield sign. Because everybody knows you just have to yield, okay? There develops a culture where one-lane bridges exist that if you don't yield, if if you don't approach the bridge ready to yield, everything locks up. And cars will pile up on both sides. And people are going to be angry with you because you have not come willing to yield. And so the culture is, if you arrive first, you get to go first. What if you arrive at the same time? Yield. Be ready to yield. Both sides yield. You don't even have to stick up a sign. And then you let four or five cars pass going each way, and then four or five the other way. And everybody knows this is how we have to do it because this is how we get along and things continue to flow. Well, that's how relationships work in the body of Christ. We come to those relationships prepared to yield. What does that mean practically? If you missed Matt Morton's sermon last week, it was, it was wonderful. He talked about true greatness in Christ's estimation. How do you become great? Because the disciples wanted to become great. And Jesus said, this is how you become great. You bend low and serve. Follow my example. And let me show you, Jesus said, really, really practically, day to day. And he put on the robe of of a servant, of a slave. And he didn't grasp or cling to his rights as the son of God, creator of the universe, eternally pre-existing God. He didn't grasp onto that, as we're told in Philippians chapter 2. Instead, he surrendered his rights. He took on the form not just of humanity, but of a slave. And he got down low and he washed each of his disciples' dirty, grimy feet. He says, now I've given you an example. Go out and do that if you want to be great. That's what mutual submission looks like. You enter into the relationship prepared to yield. Because that follows the example of Christ. And as you do so, people watch that in your life and they watch that in our relationships to one another and they say that is totally contrary to the culture which demands its rights. Something is different and we're pointing them toward Christ. We submit, therefore, one to another. Paul goes on and he takes this principle and he applies it to the specific relationship of marriage. Look with me again, chapter 5, verse 21. He says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's the controlling principle for this whole section. Goes on husbands and wives and talks about children. Submit therefore to one another 
Wives, unto your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay. What he's saying is, wives, this is the way that you display your submission to God in your submission to your husband. In honoring him and respecting the authority that God has given him in the home and not speaking badly about him to your children or to your friends. Deferring and surrendering your rights. But then he goes on, he says, Husbands, this is the way that you show your submission to God. You love your wife as Christ loved the church. Okay, that principle of submission carries through for both wives and for husbands. And when couples come into my office and they're really struggling in their marriage and, and, and the wife in particular may be having a difficult time submitting to her husband, she doesn't usually tell me that. It's the husband who tells me. <laughs> right? She's having a hard time submitting. I have to remind him. It doesn't say, husbands, make your wives submit. It's a voluntary choice. Well, she's wrestling with that. I, I, don't, I don't start talking to her. I turn to him and I say, how are you doing fulfilling your command to love her as Christ loved the church? Because 99% of the time, if you are loving her really as Christ loved the church and you are sacrificing for her and you are serving her and you're surrendering your rights to her, then she feels safe and she feels secure in surrendering her rights back to you. So I start there. And it's just like this one-lane bridge. When both say, as we come into the marriage, we are willing to bend low and to serve and to sacrifice and to surrender, we're not coming in 50-50. We're coming in 100% and 100%, each committed to giving up all, then it works. And there's harmony and there's beauty. And as you do that in the context of marriage, I believe that marriage is designed by God to be one of the primary evangelistic tools on the face of the planet. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church unconditionally, sacrificially. Wives submitting to their husband just like Jesus submitted his will to the Father, not my will but yours be done. They see a picture of mutual submission that draws them to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for humanity. And ultimately, that is the reason why we submit. That's why we don't cling to our rights and claim our rights because there's something more important than getting our way and that is pointing people to Jesus Christ forever so that they have eternal life, life that lasts forever. And that's more important than getting our way. And it's worked out first in the context of family. Second, it is worked out in the context of our submission to governing authorities. I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, and verse 15. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap Jesus in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, blah, 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 right? (laughs) Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. And I love it when Jesus wins. 
right? I mean, they think they're going to trick him and trap him, and he just totally, with a simple rhetorical question, he turns them upside down and they walk away. They've got nothing else to say. It, you know, this is such an interesting interaction because they, these leaders are conflicted. They don't want Roman authority. And they're expecting a Messiah will come and destroy Roman authority, but they don't want it to be Jesus because then they won't be in charge. So they don't want Roman authority, but they don't want Jesus either. And so they're trying to get Jesus out of the way and trick him by having him say something that sounds subversive to Roman authority. Jesus won't do it. Now, one day Jesus is going to return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is the ruler of the universe. They will bend the knee, it will happen. But right now, Jesus is inviting people to willingly submit to Him, and in the interim period, we submit to all governing authorities, all earthly authorities that God has allowed to be established. Peter picked up on this principle from Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Okay, notice the connection there. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. How do you work out your submission to God? Well, in the family, but also in your submission to to earthly rulers or earthly authorities. That's how I work out my submission to God, for the Lord's sake. Whether to a king as to one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What Peter is saying is God has allowed human authority to exist so that evildoers would be punished and those who do right would be praised. That's generally how... God has established governing authorities, so submit to them, okay, for the Lord's sake, so that you can silence the foolish of ignorant men, okay? In other words, don't have people attack you because you're a criminal. (laughs) Don't have people attack you because you're unwilling to submit to governing authorities, because you're subversive. Have people attack you because of the name of Jesus Christ. Let them stumble over your life for the right reason. Submit to them for that reason. Now, notice he goes on and he applies this in the relationship between servants and masters. Verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God. A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Notice he says, not just to those who are good and those who are gentle, but even to those who are harsh and unreasonable, because this finds favor with God. Do it because it honors God, even to those who are unreasonable. Now, the Bible doesn't talk about employer-employee relationships, but I think we can make an application from this. The employer doesn't own you personally, but the employer owns your time because the employer purchased your time. And so you submit to the employer and you honor the employer and you respect the employer and when you disagree with the employer, you don't walk around behind the water cooler and go, or Twitter really quickly, bad boss, 
stinky day at work. Gossip, 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 tear, tear, tear. You don't join in that. You show honor and respect because of the position. As Paul says, there is no authority except from God. And when Paul was writing that, Rome was in charge. The Caesars were not godly people, but Paul said, we still honor them. We still respect them because of the position. That applies to us as Christians living in the United States of America. We live in a democratic society so we can vote. And we vote and we elect our officials who govern us. And our person may not get elected. So do we disrespect them? Because our guy isn't in place or our, our woman isn't in place? No. We still show honor and respect because of the position. Now this is immediately applicable. Evangelical Christians in the Bible Belt, you may or may not agree with Obama's health care. But how do you speak about him? You can disagree on the issue, but how do you speak about him? And beyond that, do you pray for him? I can tell you that the will of God for your life is pray for those who are in authority over you. Paul states it explicitly. For kings and all who are in authority, pray for them. How much time did you spend discussing the various issues surrounding current legislation and how much time spent in prayer for the leaders that God has placed in authority over us. I feel very convicted about that and what I'm modeling for my children. Respect those who are in authority over you because God has allowed them to be in authority over you and you don't know what God is working and how he's working and all the different ways that he is managing world events right now, but you know that the will of God for you is to show respect and honor and pray even if you disagree. Now what do you do if an employer or a government tells you to do something that's illegal or immoral or ungodly, don't do it. But be ready to suffer the consequences. But don't do it. Okay, think about the illustration from the book of Acts, chapter 4. Peter and John are out preaching the gospel. And the governing authorities haul them in and say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. You can't do that anymore. And what is their response? Hey, whether it's right in the sight of you or God, you know, you're going to have to be the judge. But we know this, we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. And what we have heard is Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And we will not back down from that. Respectfully, sirs, we will not. And we're even willing to take the punishment, but we cannot disobey because ultimately we report to a much higher authority, which is God. Third area in which we submit is to spiritual authority. Within the body of Christ, God has placed some in authority over us and we submit to their authority. I want you to turn back just a couple books with me to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Okay, notice again, there is a motivation. Why do we submit to the spiritual authorities that God has placed in our lives? 
because it would be unprofitable for us if we don't submit in a way that brings them joy, but rather brings them grief. And we don't want to do that. Um, When I'm trying to teach this principle to my son, I remind him, I say, buddy, everybody has to submit to someone. Okay, everybody has to bend the will. Right now, you, you have to bend the will to me because I'm the dad and you're the son. Someday you'll be the dad and you'll have a son or a daughter and then you can make these decisions, but not now. And he says, well, daddy, you don't have to submit because you're the boss. Okay, you may have gone through our new members class and this fact may have escaped your notice. He's missed it, but I'm not the ultimate boss in this church, even though I'm the senior pastor. We have a board of elders, a governing board. It's a plurality. It's not one person over me. It's a plurality. I think that's biblical. And that governing board of elders, that's my boss. And I remind him, I say, pal, I have to submit to them. I have to bend to them. I have to yield my will to them. And sometimes I will bring ideas to them, things that I want to do, directions I think we should go, and they don't agree with me. They listen to me and they're respectful to me and we argue and we debate and we discuss and then they make a decision. And sometimes I've convinced them. Sometimes I don't convince them. And they make a decision contrary to my will. What's my responsibility? Submit. Okay, I'll do what you want. Is that submission? Uh -uh. That is not biblical submission. Listen to this again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They are accountable for the decision that they make. In the spiritual care of this body and its oversight, as is possibly your home church group leader or your Bible study leader, if you're in a setting like that, they are responsible for decisions that they make. They will give an account for that, but we will give an account for the way that we submit to them. Let them exercise their authority with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Someday I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and I will not be held accountable for the decisions that the elders made. I will be accountable for the way that I submitted to the elders. And I want them to be able to stand with me at the judgment seat of Christ and say, he gave us joy rather than, ugh, he was a pain. Yeah, he did what we wanted, but boy, we paid for it. Stirred up the staff against us. Stirred up people in the congregation. Campaign. No. They make a decision. I lock arms with them and I say, such is the decision. Now, fortunately, I get to work in a church where I genuinely respect my board of elders. They're godly men. They have godly marriages. They walk with the Lord. They acknowledge that they are serving under the authority of the chief shepherd And under the authority of the word of God, so the direction that they set for our church is consistent with the word of God. And so I have joy in submitting to them. And God has taught me this lesson as I think back and review my history of employment. And I think about how I was as one who submitted in my first few jobs. I didn't didn't do that well and how God has broken that in me and brought me to the point where I enjoy having the protection of authority in my life. Okay, authority, spiritual authority in particular, is like, it's like this protective umbrella. When I present my case and they disagree and they make a decision, when I remain in submission joyfully and creating joy for them, then I'm safe because that's the will of God for me. 
And I don't have to worry about the outcome of the decision. That's in God's hands. Such is the will of God for you. Because the will of God for you is not that you get your way. The will of God for you is that you imitate Jesus Christ. And as you imitate Jesus Christ, you will have opportunities where you bump up against authority and you get to bend your will. Just like Jesus when he was in the garden and he didn't want to go to the cross. Father, if there is any other way that you can cause this cup to pass from me, that is what I want. I don't want to drink down the dregs of the physical suffering and the the spiritual separation from me, but not my will, yours be done. That is the most profound prayer in all of the Bible. That is the heart and the essence of spiritual maturity. When you see yourself beginning to joyfully yield your will to others, you're seeing God work in your life. You cannot pull this off. If you go back and you look at Ephesians chapter 5 again, verses 17 and 18, before it gets into these specific commands, it says, be filled with the Spirit. You and I cannot and will not yield our wills apart from the power of God's Spirit dwelling in us. But when we do so, it is supernatural. And the world looks in, and what they're seeing is they're seeing us pointing us toward Christ. Children to parents, husbands and wives to one another, all of us within the body of Christ, yielding to elders, yielding to governing authorities. These are people who are willing to give up their rights and bend their will. That's supernatural, and it is pointing them toward Christ. So as we close, we're going to celebrate communion together. And I want us to take this opportunity, this time when we're celebrating communion, just to take a few moments and meditate upon the surrender that Christ made, the sacrifice that he made of his will, and think through the relationships that you have in your life. Are you willing to bend so that people can see Christ? Would the men come forward and serve us? And after we've all been served, then we'll take the elements together. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, To his disciples, this would be a reminder to them every time they took that bread and broke it of his body, broken the physical suffering that he had to undergo as a result of our sins. Let's take the bread together. Then he took the cup and he told them that the cup would serve as a reminder of his blood that was poured out as a payment for our sins. As he submitted his will to the will of the Father, he made payment so that we could have a relationship reconciled forever with God. Let's take the cup together. Father, thank you for giving us Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for giving yourself. I'm grateful for your sacrifice, Christ. It reconciles us to the Father and gives us the hope of eternal life. Let's go out with this hymn. Stand and sing together.
last verse. Your sins by faith. thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you that it reconciles us to God. And we thank you also that it provides us with an example and a reminder of how life works. As we bend our will to the will of your Father, we find life. We find abundant life. I pray, Father, that throughout this week we would have the wisdom uh, not to grasp, not to cling to our own will, but to surrender by the power of the Spirit and to say, thy will be done. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.